First time I saw, I saw this, I've seen it, I think, three times now. Um, I, I, I couldn't quite figure out what might be say, being said to me at the end. And, and then I thought, well, perhaps those people who painted in the caves thousands and thousands of years ago in Cave of Forgotten Dreams would see these people in this pastoral environment fiddling, thinking that's such an alien, futuristic world. How could that ever exist? And so perhaps we should just prepare ourselves for another evolution in time. And even though it may seem alien to us now, we just but, have to embrace it. Yeah, it sounds interesting how you connect it. Uh, and I, in a way, I think you are right, because I always felt that Cave of Forgotten Dreams and this film uh, are companion pieces. How exactly, I, I can't uh, tell, but I know the kind of uh, visual representation and communication with, uh, with some other people whom you do not know uh, deep into the future. There's also one strange thing that occurs to me when I look at uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, uh, the kind of collective cultural memories that we seem to, to have. Uh, for example, there's one pendant uh, in the cave, and um, the only human depiction in there, it's the lower part of a female body, and a bison embracing the woman. And uh, uh, tens of thousands of years later, um, Picasso does a series of lithographs uh, uh, Le Minotaur et la Femme, the, minot the, the bull uh, and, and, and the woman. So it's very strange. Uh, in one depiction, there, there's a galloping bison depicted quite apparently trying to uh, show movement, rapid movement, and the bison has eight legs. And uh, 32,000 years later, in, in old Nordic poetry, in the Edda uh, poetry, in I Icelandic, uh, 12th century, uh, you have uh, uh, explanation about uh, uh, the god Wotan or Odin, and his horse is the fastest of all horses, Sleipnir. And Sleipnir is so fast because Sleipnir has eight legs. So there seem to be cultural uh, memories functioning, and in a way, what we are doing now with the internet of course, much of it will disappear and much of it uh, will be wiped out, and yet there will be some sort of a strange cultural memory uh, pervading maybe uh, 10,000 years later, something will, will come up without clear evidence that we are going back to a, uh, to a tape with uh, uh, digital messages on it somehow solidifies collectively in, in us. Danny um, Hillis, you, you've noted in the film, uh, talks about this era being the digital dark age. And I just wonder if you saw this film in a way as, as perhaps con contributing in a way to, to being a record. Yeah, not so much for me. It was just my curiosity. And I, I wanted to see what, what is going on. Of course, conceptually, I understand what's going on. And I, I see it uh, with my own eyes, and yet every single uh, person I met was, was a new surprise, and new uh, wonders that opened up to me. Uh, and of course, there's also a, a, a good amount of skepticism, so you shouldn't overlook that. 
that um, of course uh, we, we have to create filters and, and deal in the right way with what we have now. So could you talk about how the idea first sort of began and how it grew? Well, it has a prehistory. I, I have to point out that I made a YouTube film. I was approached by AT&T, a telephone provider, to do something about a film about texting and driving because uh, there were so many fatalities and, and accidents accumulating. I mean, the statistics went through the roof. And um, they, I was asked, could you do something for AT&T? And I said, no, I do not do commercials uh, because I, I'm not comfortable with consumer, uh, our consumer world. So I do not want to really be uh, part or instigator of it. Of course, I'm part of consumer society as well. But um, I was curious, uh, and when I was told, no, it was a public announcement, I became curious and I made a film which was uh, extraordinarily successful on YouTube. It was beyond all expectations. And I think it had a lot of impact on those who saw it. If you see that film, you will never ever text in <laughs> while you are driving. <laughs> and um, in a similar way, I was approached by a company called NetScout. It's a very respected company that organizes uh, gigantic flows of data and keeps them moving and uh, looks for anomalies and for uh, attacks, cyber attacks in it and so on. And they wanted me to do something for YouTube, S uh, specific smaller films, maybe five-minute clips, as, as I said. And um, I had the feeling, yes, it sounded really, really interesting. And I went into it, and much of what I did was, uh, was casting. Casting a like, uh, little bit like in, in feature films. I don't see much difference. You, you, have, to, you have to see there's somebody who, who might be really good on, on camera. And I focus on those people and, and no one else. There was only one single person with whom I filmed who is not in the film. All the rest was very straightforward, very quick shooting, very small amount of footage. And that's, that's how I function best. I'll open the floor in a moment, but um, before I do, um, I'm just curious about Ted Nelson, the man who yeah. appears in the film that, that you sort of agree with. I think anyone who's looked for a quote online and tried to find the source of it, and you have all these awful websites that just give you a quote with no attribution whatsoever. Seeing his logic of how the, the internet should work was yeah. so refreshing and in a way so, felt so radical to what we're used to now. At what point in time did you encounter him whilst making the film or doing the research? Fairly early, right. fairly early. He was one of my first clients, as I <laughs> keep saying. Uh, now he was early on and uh, it was, uh, from then on, it was much easier because I saw all the possibilities out there, the potential in going into completely different directions and uh, different ways of thinking and different ways of dealing with the internet. So that, that was a very, very good so, sort of warm-up shoot. And it's, 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 quite interesting. it's quite interesting the way that, that you filmed him, because I think pretty much up until that moment in time, we have people in offices or labs or these long anonymous yeah. corridors. 
And this is someone who's talking very organically and, and talks about being a child putting his hand in the water, and he's shot in that way. Yeah. And it's, I, I was just very curious about the, the whole approach you took with him. Oh, you see how, how much I like him. Well, <laughs> you, you see how much I like all the others. So that's, uh, uh, that's something which then comes naturally and it comes easily. Uh, and, and I always try to be um, almost in physical contact until the very last moment, for example, I would be in physical contact. Yeah. I, would, I would talk to him and, and somehow very often I would hold the hand and speak to him and then I'd drop the hand and step behind the camera. And you have a, a real physical sort of uh, rapport. There's some warmth, there's some tactile. Unfortunately, I cannot show how my hand reaches out, but I do reach out to him when he says, yeah, he's considered insane. And I tell him, no, you, you seem to be the only one who is clinically sane. And he starts to take the photo of us. You, you see, there's a rapport that is almost, almost physical. Let's, let's take a question from the audience. Uh, hello, Werner. I'm a huge fan. I'm just curious, uh, you're primarily a storyteller and a documentarian. What is it about uh, acting that appeals to you? Is it the kind of people who you want to work with, or is it more the material, since you've done a lot of acting? Well, I would say it's always the material. Uh, but I have, done, I have done acting fairly early in, in my life as a filmmaker. I always considered it as part of what I do. And I really love everything that, that has to do with uh, cinema, writing, directing, production, editing, working with music, acting. Uh, I really always look at the material. And, and sometimes it's, how shall I say, Harmony Corinne, for example, deceived me. She said to me, and, and I really like the young man in, instantly. There was an instant rapport. And he said to me, Werner, you should be in my film, uh, Julian Donkey Boy. And you will play, because I see you as some sort of a father figure, you will be the father, and I will play the part of your son. And I arrive on the set, and there's no harmony in any costume or anything. He's behind the camera, and there's a, there's a young actor who is my son and another young actor, and I said, what's happening here? No, he said, no, I, I had to bail out. I think I'm not good. So I, I was kind of left alone as the father of Harmony Corinne. And um, I said, OK, let's, let's deal with the situation as it is. And uh, I, will, I will try to, to make the best out of it. It was clear the father of this family had to be the epicenter of dysfunction. There had to be hostility against uh, his kids. Um, and uh, so I tried to be as dysfunctional and as, as hostile as it gets. And, and it was always good. I, you see the, the, the team is cringing. Uh, and, and you know now they are really scared. So that gives me a, an, an additional impulse. And quite often there was no dialogue uh, in Harmony Corinne's film. And I ask, yeah, what, uh, what's the dialogue here at this uh, table here, at the dinner table? And he just said, Werner, speak. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that just made that out of despair. I keep, I keep telling my, my kids uh, about the end, of, uh, the end of Dirty Harry, how Dirty Harry blasts a bad guy away. 
So, but it, it really was out of necessity that I had to say something. And it's a fine scene. <laughs> and uh, Jack Reacher, for example, I did because I had the feeling, um, number one, that the screenplay was, was well written. And I, I had the feeling I should, uh, there was nothing wrong to be a, a villain in a, in a big Hollywood production. And uh, I was paid handsomely for, for, being, for spreading uh, horror. I should be frightening. <laughs> and, and I'm good at that. <laughs> not, not as a private person, of course. This is my, this is my screen persona. Uh, and and in, in that respect, uh, I can translate uh, fairly easily into a screen persona. Or for example, when you hear my voice, my commentary voice, uh, it, of course it's very close to the voice I'm speaking with you right now, but it's a stylization, a form of stylization of the voice. Um, it's it's my, my stage voice in, in some respect. Although uh, my, my voice here is, is not too dissimilar from what you hear in the, in the commentary. But the things I'm saying, for example, in, in my commentaries as I write my own text, they are unusual. The, the stragglers left behind in Chicago, and they are Buddhist monks, and they're all, they're all tweeting. So, those, those things, it's, it's content and it's, and it's performance. I, will actually and I really like what I do. <laughs> I, I, no, it's, uh, I get the feeling a lot of people like what you do as well. Um, I, I will actually say that outside, um, Werner was speaking perfect Queen's English. This really is a, a stage voice. Um, someone had their hand up there. Yeah. Um, it, it's a deeply thought-provoking and disturbing film. I'm curious why you want to go to Mars. Only with a camera. <laughs> uh, it, it would be really fascinating to be out there with a camera, and of course, that's why I ask about the internet on Mars. Could, could it be beamed easily down to a, to a theater like this, and, and I, would, I would send the first, the, the first real beautiful uh, report from, from Mars. But you see, it, it should be they always send out the technicians. They never send out the poets. <laughs> and uh, that's what I'd like to do. But set behind all this, of course, there was also a motive to get Elon Musk out of his reserve. He's phenomenally shy. He's phenomenally non-communicative. He's phenomenally introvert. And um, I, um, when I say I, I would volunteer, I would, I would come along, all of a sudden he comes alive and he, he looks and he seems to make contact. And, uh, and there was another thing which I like, that he, he's not really a media figure, the worst you can imagine. And you would ask him something and he would brood, but he would brood for five minutes <laughs> and not give an answer. I mean, you cannot... And, and, uh, I, I wanted to, to ask him about dreams, and he wouldn't say anything. And I said to him, uh, you know what, I, I personally find it hard to ask this question because I do not dream myself. Maybe a, once a year. And he was kind of got curious, and he said, what do you dream? And I said, 
I said, it's all banalities. Uh, last dream that was about a year ago, I dreamt that I had a sandwich for lunch. <laughs> and all of a sudden, yeah, he, he leans back and, and, I, and, and he sinks into himself and I said, what, what do you dream? And he, 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 I took my, my part out and from the moment on he starts to think he thinks and thinks and thinks and thinks. We have no idea what's going to come. And he looks up and he says, uh, I don't really remember the good dreams. I only remember the nightmares. And it's completely out of context, but it's beautiful. And that's why I wanted to have it in the film. So part of it, part of it is uh, what I do is, is bringing life in, into what he has to say. Question, we got that. Was it a nice sandwich? Pardon? Was it a nice sandwich? Uh, it was boring. It was <laughs> this, the, the most stupid turkey, turkey sort of sandwich, <laughs> means, which I never would eat. Uh, and that, but yeah, that, that's a whole different conversation, your yeah. turkeys and chickens in your films, which um, you seem to not be too happy with. No, I like them. I mean, I, and I like to hypnotize them. It's easy. You, everyone can do it. You put the beak down on, on the ground, they draw a quick line of chalk, and they stay hypnotized. <laughs> so, but I, I've actually seen somebody who hypnotized uh, crocodiles, and I don't know how he did it. <laughs> so I, I have to learn, still, I'm still learning. <laughs> yep. um, g given that you were interviewing experts and Children. No, no, for, for God's sake, I'm not an expert in no. interviews. And I do not do interviews, I do conversations. Okay, I have well, no catalogue of questions. Um, so interview, let's, let's skip that. But okay, well, given that, that you I were talking to people who know a lot about the internet and children are experts on the internet, I was interested why you had so few children in your film. There are actually no children, but there are fairly young people who, were, who are addicted to video games. Um, well, many things are not, not in, in the film. Of course, the 11-year-olds uh, show me how to, how to do things, and, and my, my knowledge of the internet is, is fairly limited sometimes. Since some of my statements went viral, I know how to, how to deal with it in a in a podcast, uh, I, I asked, uh, how do I find you if, uh, how, how do I, and, and I was told, you, you just dial, dial in, type in our address and Google us. And my question then was, how for heaven's sake do I hack into Google? <laughs> so there was a scream <laughs> on the other end, uh, how, how the hell do I hack into Google? And of course, uh, children would, would immediately dismiss me as a dinosaur if I said something like that. But many other things are not in the film. I, uh, I thought for a while to do something about uh, uh, dating applications like Tinder. I was thinking about bitcoins, uh, a, a, phantom, a phantom currency, which I don't really understand how it functions, but I'd like to to find out what's going on. I couldn't do it because at that time, the uh, person who apparently invented it 
um, was outed by some journalist. Uh, he actually denied that he had been the, the inventor of Bitcoin. So you couldn't really approach anyone uh, with a camera. So there are things today I probably could do something about Bitcoin and, and many, many other sites. But I, I don't have to give you an encyclopedia of what the internet is all about. Um, just quickly, yeah. looking at all the things that you cover, one of the things I find fascinating is that um, you have scientists talking about this. And when we see the science fiction images of the past, it is a very Jetsons image of the world. Um, and it's Sebastian Thrun from Stanford I found really fascinating because he talks about this future. But it struck me that no one talks about class or poverty. It, it strikes me that they're looking at a future for a very narrow set of people. Not necessarily uh, the educational program, it's, uh, which emerged from uh, Stanford, Udacity, Udacity, reaches out to the anonymous users of the internet. And I, I do believe uh, the 412 stack ranked against the Stanford uh, students, 412 better than the very best first from Stanford. And I think that was a kid from Bangladesh, uh, a barefoot kid, uh, 15 years old, outdoing uh, Stanford students in mathematics. We do not know exactly who, who they are, but of course uh, the internet as it is available pretty much worldwide now, is accessible for uh, an African boy uh, in somewhere in the savannah of Tanzania. Or you uh, will find all of a sudden someone in Uruguay or in God knows where. And um, it, it does not, programs like this do not aim at the impoverished one. They aim at everyone, whoever is in, interested in mathematics, for example. Here is a program, uh, dial in and uh, be with us. And you don't have to pay the $35,000 per semester uh, that you have to pay at Stanford. I was interested in what you said about um, when you were doing, when you were having conversations with people, how you would physically connect with them or share something of yourself in order to allow them to be more relaxed and more spontaneous. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about working with actors in, in fiction and uh, similar techniques that maybe you use in order to enable them mm -hmm. to be relaxed and spontaneous. Well, there's no, there's no specific way I'm, I'm dealing with actors. In fact, uh, with every single one, I, I develop my own sort of language and my own form of rapport. Sometimes, even in the same scene, you have two or three actors. I would instruct, uh, communicate uh, with you differently than with uh, the person right next to you. Um, I, I do not follow any school. I think it's very silly what's going on with his method acting and all this kind of craze, uh, which doesn't make any actor any better. It makes him only more difficult. Um, but uh, you ultimately, ultimately, you have to know the heart of men, uh, and of course of women as well. When you when you try to elicit something and get something across, sometimes uh, I'm more precise and detailed uh, because it gives 
a certain amount of security uh, to the actor if, if they are somehow very well guided when, when they understand the choreography of movement, when they understand the, the tone. Very often, and in the last moment, as I do the slate myself, I'm the last one pulling out, I would ask you, give, give me the chamber tone A, meaning they know, give me the first line. And I listen, I say, no, 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 way too fast. Don't do it like this. Just calm down, calm down once again. And then I say, yeah, that's, that's almost there. Next time you will do it really good for the camera now. Slate and I move out. So sometimes uh, you need a, a, a very precise tone uh, and, and a clear choreography. Sometimes it's good to give them uh, freedom to, to be an architect of, of the sequence. A very good example would be Nicolas Cage in Bad Lieutenant. And um, we knew he had to intimidate two elderly uh, ladies and find out, force out from them uh, where a, a boy that was important for him for his investigation, where, where he, the boy was hiding. And he draws his gun and there was dialogue and the scene went so and so far and that was basically that. And I had the feeling there was more into it and, and I said to to Nicholas, you know what, Nicholas, you, um, you do it until there, but if, if you sense there's more in it, and it can be really nastier with the women, go wild, turn the hawk loose, <laughs> and, and he does. So, um, and, and uh, he enjoyed being, being the architect now of what was following. And, and it was very remarkable what he did. It's, it's not always successful. Sometimes uh, they wouldn't know what, what, else, uh, what else to do or what else to say. Uh, and um, sometimes uh, I start to understand what, what they would say. We, we had at the very end, uh, it ends at a uh, fish tank. I'm speaking of Bad Lieutenant and he's you see the fish floating behind him very slowly, some big fish and so. And I said to him, uh, you should say something. And he said, what? what could I say? What could I say? I have no clue. And I looked at him and saw the fish behind him. And I said to him, why don't you say, do fish have dreams? And then wait until that sentence makes you laugh. And he says that, and it takes long, long, long time. All of a sudden, there's a very strange chuckle. And when that comes, cut, end of the film. <laughs> so um, it's very often a, a kind of uh, exchange, uh, a, a silent exchange, or sometimes an outspoken exchange. Um, but I. I cannot really give you a, 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 a guidance how should we do deal with actors. I have to do it every single day with every single person according to the situation and the character. Um, unfortunately, I've got a signal that we do have to end uh, the Q&A. Please join me in thanking Werner Herzog. Thank you.